that may be one of those things that is not a coincidence. We're going to be talking about suffering and trials this morning. Somebody said to me, a friend of mine said that, you know, it's a good thing that you're the one talking about suffering. That way people can experience it at the same time you talk about it. I think that was his gift of encouragement coming out. I want to thank those of you who've been uh, praying for my, my health situation. Um, some of you know that I had, if you're tracking it through the, the prayer line, some of you know that I had surgery back on September 14. That was also my 60th birthday. It's, it's kind of unusual <clears throat> to, have, uh, to have surgery on your 60th birthday, but the, and the, the, uh, the prep nurse that called me a couple days beforehand commented on it. She said, well, you know, that's, that's kind of crazy to have uh, surgery on your birthday and on your 60th birthday especially, and and I said, yeah, it seems like you guys ought to do something special for me. And so she, she agreed. She said, well, we'll do that. And so, uh, so I was pleased to see that. So I, I made a few suggestions as to what they could do. And, <laughs> and, and I was pleased to see that the recovery room crew gathered around my gurney and sang happy birthday while I was in there. That, that was a nice touch. But, but there was no cake. And they didn't uh, implement any of the recommendations that I had made with regard to modifying the hospital gown. <laughs> you know, people talk about death as the great leveler, you know, that, uh, that makes everybody equal, that death is the great leveler. That's not true. It's the hospital gown. <laughs> well, in the summer of 1967, a 17-year-old girl went for a swim in a beautiful Maryland lake. Typical teenager, she loved life and horseback riding and time with her friends and hiking in the mountains. And she had no idea that her life was about to change forever. In her rush to get into the water, she dove off a dock into shallow water and, and broke her neck, paralyzing her from the neck down and rendering her a quadriplegic. She would have drowned face down in the water but her, her sister saw her situation and, and pulled her out, enabled her to breathe. And the months that followed were spent in a hospital bed and two years of rehab. A once fiercely independent teenager was now dependent on those around her for her every need. Her parents, uh, she and her parents were, were de devastated by the, the loss and uh, consumed with thoughts of what might have been in terms of her life. She faced the prospect of living the rest of her life as a quadriplegic because there was nothing that could be done for her. Even though she was a believer in Jesus Christ, her faith in God was, in her words, shipwrecked. She couldn't imagine how an all-powerful, all-loving God could allow this to happen to her. She was frightened and she was angry. And she thought that God had abandoned her. None of the stock explanations from her Christian friends made any sense to her. And plunged into despair, she tried to get her friends to help her end her life, but no one would. Well, over time, the angry questions that she asked God with a, a clenched fist in the beginning became honest questions out of a searching heart, crying out to God to understand what he was trying to teach her and what purpose remained for her life. God responded with a verse for her out of Ephesians 2.10. It was, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is actually a little bit understated. The, the original Greek is the same root word as our word poem or, or poetry. And, and it means that the, the connotation there is masterpiece or work of art. So you are God's masterpiece, God's work of art. And she began to see that far from being abandoned by God, that God was going to intervene in her life in ways that she did not understand to create a work of art that would matter for eternity. And 44 years have now passed since 17-year-old Johnny Erickson, now Johnny Erickson Tata, broke her neck in the diving accident she thought would bring an end to all her hopes and dreams. Since God began his work in her life, she's written almost 50 books. Uh, this is one of her most recent, A Place of Healing, Wrestling with the Mysteries of Suffering, Pain, and God's Sovereignty. She's inspired millions around the world in person and, and through her daily radio broadcasts through Johnny and Friends. She's an accomplished artist, a, a vocalist, uh, an inspirational speaker, She's founded dozens of international ministries through the Johnny and Friends International Disability Center. She's received literally hundreds of awards and honorary degrees over the last 44 years. And, and in short, she's accomplished much more than, than one would expect of anyone, especially someone who doesn't have the use of their arms and legs and is, is uh, confined to a wheelchair. God's work in Johnny Erickson Tata's life has given new meaning to the promise that, that God gave the Apostle Paul asked, after he asked for healing three times for his own disability. And God said, no. Th this is what he told Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Let's look into the Word of God to see what God has to tell us about uh, trials and the way that we walk through them and the purpose for those things in our lives. If you turn with me to James, the uh, book of James, chapter 1, we'll read through the first six verses and then verse 12 as well. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And then dropping down to verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, James was a half-brother of Jesus. I say half-brother because, as you know, uh, Jesus, uh, was, uh, Jesus' mother was the Virgin Mary, and uh, she conceived as a result of the, the Holy Spirit. So he didn't have any full brothers, besides you and me, who are his brothers and sisters now in Christ. But he didn't have any full uh, natural brothers. James was his half-brother. And James was a, an ardent skeptic at first, 
didn't believe in his, his own brother could possibly be the, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, but over time, uh, came to believe that and became uh, one of the strongest leaders in the early church. And James was actually writing to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed, who had, who had been dispersed around the globe by the early persecution in the church. And um, he's talking about trials here. And, and he says that uh, a, a trial, let's, let's talk about what a trial is. That a, a trial is any uh, hardship or difficulty that comes into your life from the outside. Any hardship or difficulty that comes into your life from the outside. Uh, what, are, what are some examples of trials that you can think of? You're used to these rhetorical questions, aren't you? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, a substance abuse. A, a trial, uh, certainly the consequences of those decisions can be, although they may be self-inflicted, they can create a trial in your life, can't they? Sure. And, and for the people around you as well. What else? Losing a job. Yeah, good one. There's a lot of that now. That's a trial. Yeah. Any others? Single parenting. Yeah. The death of a child. Yes. Absolutely. And all those things are, are trials. And, and certainly there are financial reversals. People in, in uh, financial distress. And as I'm talking about things, I, I know that there are folks in every category here today. The, the loss of a loved one, a, a betrayal by a friend or, or a spouse, um, a failure in business or, or in school, uh, certainly a, a life-threatening illness or a, an injury. You know, the Greek word that James uses here as, uh, for the word trial gives us an interesting insight into, into what God intends for trials. The, the, uh, the word means an examination to submit another to a test in order to learn their true character or nature. An examination to submit another to a test in order to learn their true nature or, or character. I, I think there are a couple misconceptions that uh, many folks have about trials. And, and the first one is that uh, Christians are immune from trials, that we get a pass. That, uh, yeah, some of you know that by experience that that's not the case, don't you? Uh, that that uh, if God is good, God loves us, then God, God's job is really to protect us from anything bad that could happen to us. And, and that's what we're entitled to. It becomes an entitlement as Christians. Well, James obviously didn't believe that because he, he, he says in uh, verse 2 there, he says, when you encounter various trials, uh, that it's not an if, it's, it's a when. It's, it's going to happen. Jesus said the same thing in, in John 16, 33, where he says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say, well, you might hit a speed bump once in a while. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Expect it. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Encountering trials is inevitable. It's to be expected for us as Christians. The other misconception I think that we have is that trials are punishment that is coming on us because of sin. I don't think that's true. Uh, not, in, not in general terms. Um, and James wrote against that as well. You see, in the Jewish subculture, the people that he was speaking to would have thought that they had been taught in their tradition that if you were financially well off and that if you were physically healthy, then you were blessed by God and you were blessed by God because you were righteous. On the other hand, if you were uh, sick or physically disabled in some way and uh, financially in distress, then that was a sign that, that uh, God did not approve of you and was punishing you for that. 
That, that was the mindset that he was speaking against. What he's saying is that's not the case, that, um, that trials are, are not a punishment. They come into everyone's life. You remember when uh, Jesus, or the uh, disciples and Jesus were traveling around, they encountered a blind man, and the disciples said, uh, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Jesus said, neither his parents nor he sinned. Uh, this person is blind so that the power of God could be demonstrated in this situation. Uh, so, so trials occur for other reasons, but, but we're, not, we're not being punished because, something, because we have to walk through something difficult in our lives. Now, let me, I, I don't want to pass this without saying there are occasions, I call this the whale slime exception. It's not really an exception, but the, the whale slime exception. That will help you stick it in your mind. Remember what happened to Jonah. If a person is engaged in a pattern of disobedience, if a person who is a Christian is engaged in an ongoing pattern of disobedience, that is sin, God will do what it takes to bring that person back. And it may not be pleasant. Uh, Jonah, for example, God told him explicitly what he wanted him to do. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want, to, I want you to preach because I'm going to save that city. Jonah said, I don't want any part of that. I don't even like those people. I'm not going there. Well, you know what happened to him. He wound up being barfed up by a whale on the beach covered with whale slime. Thus the whale slime exception, you see. <laughs> you don't want to go there. You can't just straighten your tie and go on to your next meeting. It's not that easy. The, the point is that, that God will bring people back if they're Christians and they're engaged in an ongoing pattern of sin. But that's not what a, that's not what a trial is about. It, it's not punishment. And, and the reason I say it's not punishment is because uh, we've been declared not guilty. Amen? Yeah, because of the work that Jesus Christ has done, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and he's been your substitute, he's died in your place, then God has said in Scripture that he declares us not guilty, that he, he views us in the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, and so we can't be punished for what we did in, in the past. God has declared that himself. So the trials that come our way are not punishment, but they do have a purpose from God, and, and that's what we're here to talk about. So where do trials and suffering come from? Well, some come from Satan. Uh, Peter tells us that uh, in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour in, in 1 Peter 5.8. In, in the Old Testament, you remember that Satan destroyed, in the, in the example of Job, in the book of Job, Satan himself, it says, uh, destroyed Job's uh, wealth, first of all, uh, uh, acted in a, in a way to re, uh, that resulted in the destruction of his children, the loss of all his children, and finally his health as well. So he, he, he took his, his wealth, his children, and, and his health. And it says that Satan did that. Now he did that with the approval of God. I mean, he, he needed God's permission before he could touch Satan in that way. And, and Satan needs God's permission before he can touch us as well. People say, well, why doesn't God protect us from that stuff. Why doesn't he protect us from Satan? Well, he does. He does. Satan hates the people of God. And if God didn't protect us from what Satan wanted to do, we wouldn't be having this conversation because he would have finished us off a long time ago. I don't think we will realize until we get to heaven all the times that God intervened to protect us from something that Satan wanted to do in our lives. And maybe when we get there and we can kind of rewind the tape, we'll have a, a greater appreciation for God's role in protecting us from moment to moment. 
Another way that trials come in is from sinful men who use their free will to do evil things. Somebody, for example, steals your identity and causes you a lot of grief financially. That, that's a trial that comes your way because of an evil man. Evil man took an action uh, against you. What about the, the trials that our, our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering around the world right now? Many of them uh, uh, tortured, imprisoned, losing their families, their livelihoods, their homes, some losing their lives uh, because of the actions of evil men. Those are trials that come into their lives. And then finally, from the creation itself. We live in a fallen world. It's been marred by sin. If you think about it, there weren't any uh, earthquakes or tsunamis or tornadoes or cancer or traffic accidents, for that matter, in the Garden of Eden, were there? Well, that's because God's creation was perfect. And it was only with the fall that creation was infected as well. And that's why Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation itself, the whole universe groans, waiting for the, the, the redemption, the completion of that redemptive act that, that God is going to make all things new and, and it will be perfect again. So some, something happened. People, uh, earth, an earthquake happened uh, last week or two weeks ago now in, in uh, India. And Christians and non-Christians died. A church collapsed and it fell on a pastor and his wife was killed. Uh, that happens to Christians and non-Christians from those nat natural disasters. But why does a sovereign God allow bad things to happen? That's a $64,000 question, isn't it, down through the centuries? If God is sovereign and he's all loving, how can he allow this stuff to happen? Well, maybe the best example is in what happened to his own son. Let's think about that for a second. Romans 8.32 tells us that God in his sovereignty did not prevent his own son's death. That uh, he, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God in his sovereignty allowed Satan and evil men to nail his son to a cross and kill him. Now, could God have prevented that? Absolutely. Uh, but it, it, it would have prevented the redemption of his creation as well. Satan had been trying for centuries. If you think about it, down, you know, God looks down through history, and when you think about it, uh, God has, or Satan has been trying to, to kill off the people of God and then the, the Christ of God for centuries. When you look back in uh, August 14, we looked at Second uh, Chronicles 20, where this huge army came against Israel, that, and that was a spiritual battle as well. Satan was trying to wipe out the people of Israel to wipe out any possibility that uh, there could be a, a Christ. And again, uh, right after Jesus was born, you, you recall in Bethlehem, uh, Satan, through the evil king Herod, wiped out all the infants two years and under in Bethlehem. That, that was an evil act that, that, that Satan precipitated, trying to kill off Christ. God provided for his safety, of course. He, he sent, sent uh, Joseph and Mary to, to Egypt. So Satan's been trying to annihilate the people of God forever. One thing Satan didn't understand. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, that is God's eternal plan, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Satan and his minions didn't understand what God was trying to do there. They thought, uh, Satan thought, now's my chance. I can, I can kill Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But when Jesus said, it's finished, and he died, God turned to Satan and said, checkmate. Checkmate. Because you just helped me redeem all of my creation, starting with the people that I love so much. You see? 
And that's just a model of how God uses suffering and trial in our own lives, how he redeems it in our own lives and, and brings good out of it. God could have stopped that. God is sovereign, and he loved his son. He could have stopped Christ's sacrifice, and he did not because he wanted to bring good out of it on the other end. And that's a model of what he does in, in our lives as well. Every trial, folks, is a, is a spiritual battle. Every difficulty that we encounter is a spiritual battle because Satan's tugging at us on one end, isn't he? And he says things like, you know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't have to go through this. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. And that means he doesn't really love you. And so he tries to use it to alienate us from God, separate us from God. God, on the other hand, is tugging at us from the other direction, saying, depend on me, trust me. My, uh, your, your eyes should be on, on me. God is trying to use the same trial to bring us to the end of ourselves in some cases, draw us closer to him and ac- accomplish his eternal purposes in, in our lives and the lives of the people around us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we're like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt so much, are what make us perfect. The suffering in this world is not the failure of God's love for us. It is that love in action. You see, everything that happens to us becomes part of God's eternal plan for us for good. And that's God's amazing promise to us in Romans 8, 28 and 29 where he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? He also preplanned to what? To become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, just so there's no confusion, a lot of people quote, quote uh, verse 28 without quoting 29, and you can't do that because it, uh, the good that God is talking about here is not our comfort and convenience and living a happy life. The, the greater good that God is talking about here is transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the good that he's talking about in, in verse 29, shaping us and molding us into the image of his son. You see, after salvation, after we come to Christ, after we belong to him, and we've been declared not guilty, God's major preoccupation after that shifts to transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he can be the first among many brothers and sisters. And that's God's masterpiece that he's working in our lives, and he uses trials to do that. James writes about the process in verses 2 through 4 here. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops Perseverance, you can read perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. They all mean the same thing. And then he says this. This is important. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Sometimes we want to bail out too quickly. God uses, uh, perse- God uses perseverance uh, not just for this life, but for eternity. There's e- e- eternal reward in, in perseverance. God uses trials to shift our focus to from, from this life to the next one. You know, we all tend to live as though we're immortal, uh, even though we're surrounded by evidence to the contrary, aren't we, every day? You know, just look in the obit sectuary, uh, section in the Lansing State Journal, um, and, and you see evidence to the contrary every day. We, we all 
we all are, are going to die at some point in time. It, it's just a question of our place in line. I, I met with a man not long ago who had just been told he had uh, cancer. Now, he had been resistant to the gospel and anything related to God for years and years. Uh, but someone he loved was praying for him. Someone who loved him was praying for him. That's always the way. And he called me and asked if he could talk with me because he wanted me to pray for his healing. So I went, I drove over to where he was and I, I went to see him and, and uh, I said, you know, I, I said, how are you doing with all this? He said, you know, I'm, I'm scared and I'm, I'm angry. I said, I understand that. You know, when you get a, a, a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, it really puts you in touch with your own mortality. But I said, uh, there, there's something else you need to understand. I, I'd be happy to pray with you for your healing, but there's something else you need to understand, and that is that, that uh, eternity is this vast expanse of time that never ends, but our life is just a little blip. Whether we get 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, if we're fortunate, uh, our life is just a blip in the giant span of eternity. And yes, while God is concerned about your cancer, he's concerned about something else more, and that is that you spend eternity with him in heaven. And, and I said, uh, you know, Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed unto every man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And when you stand before God, there's only one thing that's going to matter, and that is, do you have a relationship with my son Jesus Christ as your Savior, or don't you? And, it, and if you do, then welcome into the kingdom that I prepared for you. If not, depart from me. I don't know you, and you're off to a place of eternal torment. It's as simple as that. I said, you'll be in a much better position to pray about your cancer as a child of God. And I explained the gospel and he prayed to receive the Savior and, uh, and became a child of God. Then we, then we prayed about his healing and God's still at work on that. He's still a work in process. God is making a masterpiece of him too. Sometimes it takes cancer to shift our focus from uh, this life to the next. The, the next life is the one we're, we're made for. God also uses trials to remove the things in this world that distract us from our life with God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, uh, 30, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 22, he said that, uh, he talked about the parable of the sower and the different kinds of soil. And he, he talked about thorny soil, remember? And, and he said in Matthew 13, 22, the thorny soil, he said, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. Unfruitful in the sense that an unfruitful person is not going to, to manifest, not going to evidence the life of Jesus Christ coming out in their life. An unfruitful person is not going to have the impact on the people around them that God intends for us to have as children of God, as children of light. And, and so they're, they're unfruitful. And the things that block us from being fruitful sometimes is our preoccupation with the deceitfulness of wealth. That's why he called it deceitful. We find our self-sufficiency in that and the worries of this life. You get to the end of your life and you realize you've had the ladder up against the wrong wall. You see? That, that, that's what he's talking about here. And so God uses trials to take those things away from us sometimes. Uh, John Eldridge puts it this way. He says, The sorrows of our lives are in great part his weaning process. We give our hearts over to so many things other than God. We look to so many other things for life. I know I do especially the very gifts he himself gives to us. They become more important to us than he is. That's not the way it's supposed to be. 
As long as our happiness is tied to the things we can lose, we're vulnerable. This truth is core to the human condition and to understanding what God is doing in our lives. We really believe that God's primary reason for being is to provide us with happiness, to give us a good life. It doesn't occur to us that our thinking is backward. It doesn't even occur to us that God is meant to be our all. And until he is our all, we're subhuman. God also uses trials to strip away our self-sufficiency. You know, folks, uh, self-sufficiency is the cancer that we all share, and it's deadly to our life with God. God's uh, always tugging at us to remind us of our dependency on him. I'm going to talk to the men especially here, because men, self-sufficiency is our Achilles' heel. And uh, God created us to be warriors, to be dragon slayers and protectors and providers and, and all of that. All of that is good. It's God designed into us. He wired us for that. But that strength pushed to a weakness. If it pushes us to the place where we don't need anybody, we don't need help from anybody, especially God, and that's the way it often manifests itself, then it's deadly to our life with God. And, and it's not what he intends for us is all. You know, we find self-sufficiency in our intelligence, in our degrees, in our physical strength, in our athletic prowess, in our money, uh, in our positions of power. And sometimes they convince us that we don't need anybody else, especially God. And, and friends, that's the reason why it's so hard for men to pray, I think. The same reason why it's so men, hard for men to pray is the same reason why it's hard for us to ask for directions. We don't want to need anybody, you see? We, we don't want to ask anybody for help. And, and, so, and so we're reluctant to pray. And, and we're reluctant to ask for directions in the same way. Uh, here's a verse that, that God wrote just for men. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and men, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, that is, in your finances, in your work, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in every other aspect of your life, in all your ways, acknowledge that God is God in that area of your life. And he says, in return, I will direct your path. I will direct your path. God also uses trials to strip away all that's uh, fleshly, our, our old person, and, and so that the character of Jesus Christ can be evidenced through us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. God is in the process of transforming us into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. George Douglas Watson puts it this way, the heavenly world comes into us exactly in proportion as all the affairs of earth are emptied out of us. And nothing so perfectly empties us and detaches us as perfect suffering does. Finally, uh, God allows us to, to uh, go through trials to lift up his name, or as Michael pointed out this morning, to glorify himself, to bring glory to himself and draw others to Christ because of our example in suffering. Sergei Kortokov was a brutal man. In his autobiography, The Persecutor, he talks about his role in the Russian secret police. 
he led a squad of other thugs, and their, their uh, mission was to find and uh, intimidate and brutalize groups of Christians in the Soviet Union. And on one such raid, they raided a prayer gathering, they ran across a, a beautiful young woman. Her name was Natasha Zadanova. She was 18 years old, uh, give or take, and uh, one of the most beautiful young women he'd ever seen. Well, uh, she was at this prayer gathering, and one of his men, a particularly brutal man, a huge man named Victor, uh, grabbed her, lifted her over his head, and, and while she screamed for mercy, he threw her against a wall. She collapsed onto the floor, moaning, and, and uh, while well, they ridiculed her. They thought that that would take care of it, and they would not see her again. But two weeks later, they, they raided another prayer gathering, and she was there again. This time, Kordakov and, and his men seized her and began to beat her unmercifully. And uh, he says in his autobiography, they beat her until their arms were tired, until they couldn't swing their fists anymore. And she was uh, bloody and sobbing. They thought certainly they, they would never see her again. But three weeks later, they raided another house church and they found her there again. Kordakov couldn't believe his eyes, and one of his men went for her with his club upraised. Just then, something extraordinary happened. Victor, the huge thug who had brutalized her the first time, stepped in front of her, and he said, Nobody touches her. Nobody touches her. She has something we don't have. And he allowed her to, to leave. Uh, Sergei Kordakov says that um, that was particularly troubling to him. Her heroism in the face of their attacks, their brutality, was troubling to him. Troubled him deeply. And later, the Holy Spirit worked in his heart and Sergei Kordakov himself came to faith in Jesus Christ. Although he never saw Natasha Zadanova again, he wrote her an open letter in his biography. And this is what he wrote. And finally, to Natasha, whom I beat terribly, and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith. I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me and I hope you can too. Thank you, Natasha. Wherever you are, I will never, never forget you. You see, the, the way we suffer matters for eternity in the lives of those who watch us walk through it. Well, how do we not waste the opportunities that, that suffering provides? Well, first of all, James says, consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. And, and it's a supernatural joy that comes from knowing that God is doing a work in your life. When you experience trial, when you come upon that difficulty or that hardship, in, instead of, you know, it, it's easy to instinctively, we go to a complaint, and how can I get out of this? Uh, in, instead, recognize that you're under construction and God is doing a work in your life and ask him for that joy and that peace that comes from knowing that. And it's the same reason that Paul tells us to hand over our worries to God with thanksgiving. He says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Joy and thanksgiving is our, is our response to trial. And then 
Also, we need to persevere under trial. And you notice from verse 12 that perseverance uh, results in eternal reward. Perseverance equals endurance, equals spiritual growth, equals treasure in heaven. That's the way we should look at that. James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Sometimes we want to bail out. We want to bail out too soon before God has accomplished all his purposes. And that's why uh, James says, no, hang in there. Stay under. Uh, uh, stay under that discipline and persevere until God is finished uh, with his purposes for you. And, and here's where uh, faith comes in, and sometimes we get tangled up, folks, especially with physical healing sometimes. We need to remember that our faith is in God to work out his purposes. Sometimes we think that our faith is in a particular outcome. Somebody gets sick, and, and we, we pray for their healing. And we say, we trust God, we believe that God can do that, and, and they don't get healed. And instead, they get worse and they die. Well, and, and we get discouraged, and we say, God didn't hear us, God didn't answer us. No, I, I would say that's not the case. Or, or worse yet, we say, I didn't have enough faith. That was the problem. Or I didn't pray with just the right formula. No, that's not the problem. <clears throat> you see, uh, sometimes God has a different purpose. What we, can, what we can have faith in, we can trust God that he is at work. And we can pray to him and ask him to work out his purpose. And the moment we pray, spiritual power is released. God's power is released in the spiritual realm. We may not see it in the same way that we expect to see it or, or that we hope it will it will occur, but we have to trust God. Our faith is that God will do what is best in that situation, not that God will do what we think is best in that situation. They're very different. Our faith is in God, and our prayers are always effective releasing God's power in a situation. Uh, Jennifer Kennedy Dean in, in the book Live a Praying Life, which I'd highly recommend. It's one of the best things that I've read on prayer, and uh, actually the women are going through it in a study that Laura Lee Kring is is uh, leading right now. She says this, <clears throat> your prayers will never do anything except release God's power for God's purposes. On the other hand, your prayers will always release God's power for God's purposes. You see, God is at work the moment you pray. God is at work uh, leveraging spiritual power to change things in the material world. We need, we need to ask God for wisdom as to what he's trying to teach us in, in the in the trial that we're walking through. <clears throat> James says this in James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now this is the kind of the general wisdom verse we pray all the time. But what James is talking about here is wisdom to walk through this trial. It's specific wisdom in the situation that you're in, understanding as to why it's occurring. You know, uh, uh, a week or so after I had the surgery last uh, last month, uh, my surgeon called up and he said, well, we got the results of the biopsy back and, and it looks like uh, lymphoma. And he said, you have one of the, the seven varieties of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I, I called Gene about it and, and then I just prayed that God would um, work out his purposes. I said, you know, Lord, give me wisdom on the basis of this verse. Give me wisdom as to what you're trying to do in my life and what purposes you want to see come out. Because I, I want to see everything that you want to see uh, come, out of my, come out of this uh, experience, this trial that you're having me walk through. Help me understand why that is. And that very afternoon, I picked up my son on the way home from work, and, and we had the most wonderful spiritual conversation about God's sovereignty, my 28-year-old son, about God's sovereignty and the way he works in our lives. 
And, and I, I said, thank you, Lord. I think that's part of the answer that, uh, that you're giving me uh, so that, so that I, can, I can share about that. Ask God for, for wisdom. Ask him what he's trying to teach you as you walk through the particular trial that you're going through so that you can cooperate with him in it and, and ask him to fully accomplish his purposes in your life through the trial, whatever they are. Here's one more thing to ask for. Ask for wisdom as to how to pray. God will tell you how to pray about that particular trial you're going through. Uh, is it healing he wants for you? Is it something else? Is it, uh, what was he trying to teach you through that financial reversal or, or through the alienation of that child? You know, your prodigal child that's, off, that's gone sideways and is, is doing something that, that's not pleasing to God and you know about it. Uh, what is he trying to accomplish through that? Give, that? give that to God and ask him for that wisdom. And let it focus you on what we're really here for, knowing God better and, and loving God more. Trials have the potential to draw us close to God and help us to know God in a way we could not otherwise. This is the way John Piper puts it in Desiring God. This is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God and less satisfaction in self and the world. Every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through suffering. Next, get into God's Word in prayer. We're on the home stretch, folks. Get into God's Word in prayer. Friends, if you don't spend time daily, a little time, I'm not talking about hours and hours, if you don't spend 15, 20 minutes, the morning is the best time for me. If you don't spend 15, 20 minutes hearing from God in his word and, and hearing from him in prayer, you're going to be spiritually malnourished. And what's just as bad is you will not be prepared for whatever comes your way. When that, when that comes, when that, whatever it is, when that train comes down the tracks and hits you, you, you will not be prepared for that. Because I'll tell you what, when you get that, that call, that cancer diagnosis or whatever it is, you know, very quickly in the moment, you decide what you believe about God. It, is God everything he says he is and can we trust him? Or have all, all of us been just wasting a lot of time in church? It's one or the other, it can't be both. I think, I think we can trust him. But... You won't be in a position to do that unless you're in God's Word and, and in prayer. And along with that, let's get in the habit of asking uh, each other. When you know a person well enough, I mean, it's not a conversation starter, but when you, when you uh, know a person well enough, ask them, is there anything that I can pray for you for? Is there anything that I can lift you up before the Father for? That's bearing each other's burdens. That's what we did this morning together. That should be happening all the time. Pay attention to your testimony. Last point here. Pay, pay attention to your testimony. God will use others to, God will use it to bring others into the kingdom. No room for this is a no whining zone. There's no room for whining and complaining. That's not how Christians walk through trial. That's how the world walks through trial. That's how we're distinctive, and that will draw people to Christ. This is the testimony of Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata after 44 years in a wheelchair. She says, he has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He's the master artist or sculptor. He's the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal me of every physical affliction. I am his poem, 
Do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to, you need to trim line number two and brighten up lines three and five. They're just a little bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? Yes, I pray that my pain might be removed, that it might cease, but more so I pray for the strength to bear it, the grace to benefit from it, and the devotion to offer it up to God as a sacrifice of praise. To this point, as I pen this chapter, he's chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Now that's a testimony. Friends, you and I are his masterpiece, his work of art. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, so great we can't even wrap our minds around it. I I just don't understand it, Lord, but I accept it because you say it so. And and Lord, uh, we know that you intend uh, everything that comes into our lives for good, and I ask that you'd you'd give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding so that when those things come our way, that our first reflex would be to turn to you and say, what is it you're trying to teach me, Lord? What is it you want to come out of this so that I can cooperate with you in it? We ask that you surround us uh, in a group this size, Lord. I I know many of these folks are are walking through difficulties and trials and hardships, sometimes for years. And and I ask that you would come close to them, that you'd surround them with your presence, and that you'd give them the peace and joy that comes from trusting you. So often, Lord, we're with Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 when he said, Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. And as the psalmist said, some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. And uh, we pray in the, in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and on the basis of his shed blood for us. Amen.